Welcome to the Electric Monks Podcast. Episode 27, Mr. Mage's Magical Existential Crisis. Hello everyone, and welcome back once again to the Electric Monks Podcast. I'm Ed, and I'm here with my three co-hosts. They are Nemo. Good morning. Dalek. Hello. And Jesse. Hey, how's it going? I don't think they'll be able to reply back, Jesse. <laughs> we can. We're doing well. Oh, yeah, we're here. I forget about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, just, obviously, just insert a three-minute pause so they can detail their entire day. <laughs> so, anyway, today we'll be doing episode six of season two, which is Girl Power. <laughs> It's written by Sean Ed Daly as well, so it's the first episode of Dirt Gently to be written, or credited to be written, just by a female writer, or involve a female writer in the you know, credits. And it's directed by Richard Laxton, who also directed the previous episode, which was Shapes and Colours. So, guys, before we get into the uh, synopsis, what did you guys think of this one, very quickly? This this is the Empire Strikes Back of Dirt Gently episodes, and I love it. <laughs> it's really good. There's there's a lot of moving parts and uh, and things start getting put together in different ways, uh, which makes it interesting, but makes it uh, complicated to watch and follow. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I enjoyed long it. Synopsis. <laughs> the first <laughs> impression that I ever had of this episode after watching it, it's almost like just looking at a Rube Goldberg machine through a very very dirty piece of glass, <laughs> and then. And then right at the end, they just drop the piece of glass and start the first marble. That's an interesting simile. Uh. I like most of it. There are a couple of bits that I had like one or two nitpicky issues with because uh, Jesse, since I have problem with the blackness, stuff was my problems more with like other elements, and some of them kind of pop up here. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Which, okay. Yeah, we're getting to it. So that's me and Jesse having the different problems for season two, <laughs> <laughs> which is good because it means. We tend to disagree, which is good. I like disagreeing with people because it means that I don't know everything. If I knew everything, that would be depressing. So season two of Dirt Gently's Sister Agency, you can watch on in Europe. You can watch it on Netflix. Uh, in America, in United States, you can watch it on Hulu. Those are the streaming service options, but there's also on DVD and Blu-ray in the States, at least. Still can't get it in the UK, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, so let's get into the synopsis for season two, episode six, Girl Power. After going on a huge bender, Todd, Farrah, Tina, and Dirk all wake up at the police station in various states of disarray. Susie is furious that she failed to kill Dirk and decides to turn Scott into a frog. Susie goes to visit the mage, who's having an existential crisis after discovering that Wendemore and everything in it, including himself, was created by a child. The mage believes that he has already lost and that Dirk has already found the boy, but Susie decides that she's going to kill the boy herself before taking over Wendemore without the mage's help. Dirk realises that the mage must have arrived in Bergsburg before Panto Trost and that Susie is the mage's apprentice foretold in the prophecy. The prophecy also states that Dirk will bring the boy who will stop the mage, which is why they want him dead. With Hobbes missing... Dirk decides that they should go to the hospital to get answers from Arnold, who Dirk has decided must be the boy. Meanwhile, in Wendemore, Martin tells Amanda that she is the leader of the Rowdy Three now, and that they'll go wherever she goes. Amanda decides to stay in Wendemore, and Wakti Wapnasi teaches her how to make objects she sees during pararibulitis attacks manifest themselves into tools she can use in Wendemore. 
At Blackwing, Ken gets his own living quarters after Friedkin declares that he is the only smart person there. Ken wants to know what's happening in Bergsburg and suggests that Priest should ping the GPS trackers in the Sheriff Department's vehicles. Priest is able to use this to track down Dirk and company to the hospital. and also asks for higher clearance in order to speak directly to Priest, and Friedkin grants him this. At the hospital, Tina is recognized by Rizzio, another Montana-based cop, who tells them that he has been unsuccessfully trying to reach Hobbs after a shipment of guns was stolen from Great Falls. From the details, Dirk surmises that the mage must be responsible. Dirk and Todd ask Arnold how to get to Wendemore, but Arnold refuses to believe that it's real. He explains that his mother and father fell out of whether to sell the farm to the Kellum Corporation, and this led to them both dying in the same night. Arnold also mentions that he feels guilty about betraying someone, which he feels led to the whole mess. A crazed-looking Susie then shows up and begins murdering hospital staff, and Priest decides to move in to prevent her from killing Dirk. The team attempts to flee with Arnold, but Tina gets separated and Arnold is killed by Susie. Dirk becomes very depressed, thinking that the boy is dead and he has failed. Farah drives Todd and Dirk to the Cardenas house and attempts to delay Priest, who knocks Farah out. Just as all hope looks lost for Dirk and Todd, they discover that the fold-out bed Panto mentioned is the portal into Wendemore, and they disappear before Priest can get to them. End of episode. Yeah, so, very quickly, the cast. Sammy Barnett is Dick Gently, Elijah Wood is Todd Brotsman, Hannah Marks is Amanda Brotsman, Fian Dorif is Bart Kirlish, Jada Schitt is Farrah Black, Umvokai is Ken Adams, Dustin Milligan is Sergeant Hugo Friedkin, Michael Eklund is Martin, Osric Chow is Vogel, Amanda Walsh is Susie Borton, Christopher Russell is Panto Trust, Izzy Steele is Tina Tefatino, Agam Darshi is Wakti Wapnessi, Tony Amendola is Arnold Cardenas. Uh, rest in peace, Arnold. Uh, <laughs> Viv Leacock is Groups. Zach Santiago is Cross. Alan Tudyk is Mr. Brooks. John Hanna is The Mage. Francois Robertson is Marina Cardenas. Sergio Osuna is Hector Cardenas. William Vaughan is Officer Rizzio. <laughs> rest in peace, Officer Rizzio. Amitai Mamorstein is Lieutenant Assistant. Ajay Freeze is Farson Dengdemore. Jared Akerfoster is Scott Borton. John Stewart is Bob Borton. Karen Mott is hospital receptionist. And then we got uncredited cast. Cassandra Naud is, is Wakti Hand. Hannah Zerk is Bufuki Nipu. Kui Me, Kuyan Me, Joel Sturrock, and Stephanie Van Dyke. Van Dyke? Van Dyke. As Santi Santika. Uh, and but finally, Bentley is Rapunzel the Corgi. I think, again, uncredited, which is unusual, because usually uh, Bentley is Rapunzel the Corgi. One of the main cast members in season one has sort of been delegated to uncredited status in this season. We should get into uh, talking points for this episode. So what is the very first thing we see in this episode? We see the a flashback. door. You oh, yeah, see the door. door. It's, 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 a, it's a weird hint. You see, you see a door from Blackwing, which opens. And there's, I believe there's a symbol on the door. Yep, there's uh, two, two circles uh, interlocking or, or overlapping at least. Which uh, we have a larger seen circle. earlier in the season. You see it over a sleeping man's bed. Ah, that would be it then. Yes. And then it opens and we transition to a flashback to Bergsburg in what looks like the 50s. And it's yeah. Marina and Hector driving in their little truck. <laughs> and suddenly a boat crashes in from God knows where. <laughs> and literally God knows where, because I don't. I think even now, after the whole season, we still don't know where this boat came from. <laughs> but, um, but Hector Marina, I think, hear a baby in there, an infant. 
and then the flashback ends. I forget if uh, Hector and Marina are arguing about something. They're thinking about settling down and having a kid. They're arguing, yeah, 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 that is, that is exactly what that is. But the, the, it's the infant male Francis Pollock, right? Or Pollock Francis? It's Pollock Yeah, Francis, it's, it's common. Pollock, yeah, in, the infant male, comma, Pollock, comma, Francis. Yeah. The thing about this, and it, it's I, I, because this happens in this episode, I want to bring it up, even though it is a, maybe a little spoilery for later plot points, is this boat sequence raises so many questions about the origin of every member of Blackwing, uh, every every subject of Blackwing, rather. The, the, the I guess the question for me is, is this the birthing of this child? Are we witnessing this child coming into the universe? Or was this child born somewhere else and transported themselves on this boat? Good question. I have no answers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, that, that whole secret, it's, I've, someone else, I think, pointed this out. It reminded them of Superman, the origin of Superman, that he sort of crashes in oh, yeah. from space, yeah. and then mum and dad can come and find him, don't they? Near their barn yeah. or whatever it is. And the Cardenases have a barn as well, and take him in and sort of raise him. That I've, I think there's some very conscious similarities there, and also, I guess, Max Landis, who you know is the showrunner and stuff, uh, also did a bunch of Superman comics, I think. Um, I think before, though, generally. Definitely the writing team would definitely have been quite conscious and aware of that. But I w- I'm not sure if it's a reference, because it's sort of a, um, at this point, it's sort of a sci-fi trope that alien crashes in from space and human parents look at No, I think, I think yeah. the parallels are definitely there. Uh, you know, they, the Cardenas' own a farm, you know, there's this. This is a clearly supernatural child that is being delivered to them in, in a in a very unusual way. Yeah. Anyway, interesting opening, and like you said, it raises a ton of questions about the boat and that certain character's origins. And then after the opening titles, uh, it goes to end of sound of nothing. Right? Scott walks up to Susie, who's lying in a, ba- a bale of hay, and uh, Scott still on his high from, I guess, the love spell, uh, sort of confesses about his attitude and he decides he's going to change and he's going to treat Susie a bit better. Not quite set up to be a genuine heartfelt moment because we know Scott has been nothing but a dick up to this point. But Susie, clearly not listening to any of it, just decides, right, you little shit, I'm going to turn you into a frog. To me, it is a heartfelt moment. To me, I feel a heartfelt moment from Scott on that, that like he's a yes. shitty teenager that realizes he was wrong. He under- he's, he's like bearing himself to his mother as like, look, I feel like you never wanted me, but I support That's you it. now. I'm, I'm, I am here for you. And on a very real level, this is the show showing that Susie could in this moment fix her life and have a decent relationship with her son and use this magic to improve this world and her life in this world. And she rejects that. She says, screw that. I can be a queen. I can be a queen and that's what I want. I don't want you. I don't care about my child. This this is the moment where she goes, she is no longer redemptive. Like she yeah, has stepped over that bridge and basically said, no, I am an unredeemable character. I have turned my own son into a frog after he bore, bared his soul to me. I have no interest in this world. I have no interest in this reality. I want power. And the mage has promised me that. And I will do whatever it takes to get it. And I don't care anymore. 
yeah. about anything I, else. I think in, I have to. I think you want me over there, uh, but I, I have to agree as well because like if Susie just said, "Oh, come on here," then the plot kind of ends. <laughs> There's no well, threat. To, well, apart from Black Queen, maybe I guess. I, I thought they were going to go the extra step and and have her yell that she never she never did want him. Yeah, it felt like that that being made absolutely explicit. It feels like it's something that must have been scripted and then at some point they decided, no, we'll, we'll not make it that obvious. It's it's a bit too... I sort of yeah. like how she doesn't even care enough to sort of explain why she... Yeah. yeah, she just that's, like... That's, that's maybe it. I've done it it's now and like, then there's that evil little grin. Yeah. And to be fair, it's a lot more fun having Susie... Yeah, she, she could have said, you're right, I didn't want you, zap. And it could have been a fun glib moment, but it would have detracted from making her so clearly unredeemable that she's, she doesn't even care enough to do that. Like, you know, yeah. In her mind, she's just going, screw you, kid, zap. But she can't be bothered to articulate it. He's, he's so unimportant to her. Remind me, is the next bit Blackwing? It is freaking moaning at Lieutenant Assistant, and we finally find out Lieutenant Assistant's name. He's not the assistant, he is genuinely just a lieutenant who uh, freaking has mistaken for an assistant, because that's just... Sure. Oh, yeah, 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 you're right, you're and right. freaking gets a bit annoyed that he keeps putting Lieutenant Assistant in charge, and people keep disappearing, and he says that Ken is the only competent, well, the only smart person, which I think is yeah, his voice for competent. Yeah. yeah. And so Ken effectively gets his own living quarters and uh, Rapunzel as well, the Corgi too, gets to live there. Yeah. Which is nice. There's a little montage of Ken having a shower and lying in bed and singing uh, The Girl from Ipanema. Yeah. It's a Sinatra song, isn't it? Yeah. I need you it is. Or at least he popularized it. I forget which version this is. Yeah, because it's clearly not Sinatra singing on the Dirt Jimmy version here. Yeah. After this, I later like Cowbell, there's that song playing and then it cuts to, I think, Todd waking up. And in the background, you hear like a contemporary rap song or something. So it goes something like, uh, you hear like the girl from Ipanema, and then round in a circle, yeah, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> that just makes me laugh. <laughs> just the sort of car contrapuntal that is. I, I don't mind this Blackwing section. I don't even mind this Blackwing episode, if I'm being honest. Ooh. They, they give Ken real reactions. He's very clearly happy about the bed. He's happy about these things. I like that he's kind of he's like, I'm going to need more clearance for that. And like, I like that he likes the computers. They're definitely showing that he likes all of this stuff. I still don't mm -hmm. think it, it, it's going to add up in the end, but that's not a fault of this episode specifically. I still don't like Friedkin. I think his loathing of everything stupid for as stupid as he is, is sort of a weird character trait to me it's like oh it's also stupid like yeah like you he's almost become self-parody at this point uh but yeah he's still like afraid of being a failure there is still like no clear evidence that there is any repercussions that will happen for him losing all of these subjects um it's just implied yeah, if they'd set him up as more of a control freak than him losing subjects, you could sell it as more of a reason to panic. Yeah. But he's not really set up as a control freak because he's almost set up the opposite way as a sort of don't sweat the details kind of guy. Yeah, and if, again, I feel like if around episode three or four, if they had had a meeting where he gets his ass chewed out by his female superior, Wilson, and she makes it very clear that like he will die if he fails, like they will disappear him, then all of this makes sense. Then he's afraid for a reason. I, I, I don't see the motivation on why Friedkin is the way he is. But like I said, I like the other stuff. I like Ken's shower sequence where he's like being happy and, and like, yay, we've had five episodes of me 
being in a shitty situation and now I'm not. So I mean, we can move past it. But And now uh, we don't yeah. have to have another podcast of Jesse moaning about oh, why is Ken not trying to get out of the taxi? No, <laughs> no. I, yeah, we don't. Yeah. <laughs> we'll moan about everything else uh, come episode, what, eight, ten, something like that. <laughs> Soon, I think, yeah. The future. But um, also the final leader at Ken's room, I love, uh, there's a shot of um, his, um, a couple of shots actually of his little workstation, I think. And he's got these two like giant oversized iPad things with like graphs and charts on them. And he's got like a 1980s CRT monitor or something like that. Yeah. I like also how he's introducing this episode being pushed into this room. Is that, is, is that really necessary? And they have to push the dog in as well. I like that uh, the, the dog was brought in carefully and Ken was just, yeah, or thrown in. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, he's just like, hey, and <laughs> Good very rough position. Was that necessary? Uh, so yeah. I guess the next scene is, um, like I said, uh, Todd and Farrah looking very out of it, very disheveled. <laughs> Todd is wearing the leopard trousers, as I would call them. Uh, a couple of people in this scene aren't really wearing ring brats at all. The police station looks a mess. There's bottles of tequila everywhere. I think uh, Tina is seems very um used to this kind of lifestyle so she's the one who sort of gets up and tells everyone to leave <laughs> well in, in in your synopsis you, you wrote after going on a huge bender and, and i was thinking like yeah that it's unstated but that was an orgy at yeah, least for some that of was my uh, child friendly <laughs> synopsis yeah yes yeah. <laughs> we're we're in the actual discussion now let's uh, let, let's not beat about the bush anymore yeah exactly i think the children have uh, gone to bed by now <laughs> <laughs> They probably should by the end of this episode because we get a bit gory, but uh, we, oh, we'll yeah. get there yet. Okay. In some ways, uh, Dirk is actually the one who ends up in the most precarious of uh, the position that he least wants to be in because he ends up in the cell with Bart, <laughs> just which raises all sorts of questions <laughs> given yeah. what's happening in the rest of the police station. Wearing also bright yellow hat and a purple uh, flamingo fur. That's <laughs> all I can describe it. The wake-up jump scare of Bart's head upside down is... It's... <laughs> <laughs> like, Turk is just like, doop de doop de doop and the audience is like, uh, where is he? Oh, he's in the cell, and then it's just like, hi! Uh, <laughs> and then they have an interesting discussion, and Bart is disappointed that, that they're still at the, oh, Dirk is still scared of me stage, despite the fact that I haven't tried to kill him for a while, and he's like, oh, this again? And Dirk's like, yeah, this forever, I'm afraid. <laughs> and, uh, the, this forever is a nice line, and Bart is always so genuine, and that's part of the fun of Bart. And she's like, no, I'm, I'm not killing you anymore, so she doesn't understand why everybody else isn't completely on board with that the way that she is. And Bart also tries to empathize with Dirk before he leaves the cell. Uh, well, actually, they can't because Bart hasn't unlocked the cell with her <laughs> fate powers yet. I think Bart says, look, you know, you're all confused. You're going through the same thing that I'm going through. You know, you all use all these big, the interconnectedness of all the big fancy words and all the rest of it, but you don't really know what that means, do you? And then Dirk's like, uh, okay, Bart, in your infinite wisdom, what insight do you have to offer? <laughs> Um, and Bart says something like, "Well, um, you know, I don't, I don't know any, but you know, the way things are going, this is all just going to end badly." It's just quite an ominous kind of line. Do you think Bart is maybe just messing with Dirk at this stage, or do you think she genuinely has got an intuition that this ain't going to end in sunshine and rainbows? The, the the way the line is read, it's you know, she's like, "Do you even know what we are?" She says, like, it, that it just occurred to her that she doesn't think this is going to end well. Uh, and so I think she's being genuine. She, she's like, I just know I'm an assassin. 
Like that's that's all I know. I know I. That's all I need to know. <laughs> yeah, she she knows very simple truths about herself and about the world, and that's enough. Uh, like obviously, she'd like to know more and she'd like to have more, but like she's been able to get by fine with just those things. And so I do think she's being genuine, and I think that she's she's basically trying to reach out to Dirk and say, "Hey, look, we're not so different. Why can't you see me as?" another one of these weird universe things uh, and like empathize with me on some level one thing i'm curious about is what what convert like when dirk went into that cell and was under the love spell did did another conversation happen like that's the thing that i wondered is like is bart warm being so warm to him because maybe he was less of a jerk when he was under the love spell i find it pretty easy actually to imagine that Dirk went into the cell and was all like, but like, we should be friends. Like, I know you tried to kill me, but I understand now. And <laughs> you know, he's, you know, it's, it's like not absolutely nothing sexual the way that everybody else reacted, but it was for everybody. Oh, there was this forgiveness. No, no, exactly. They're, they're, they're both very asexual characters, but everybody else went from a, uh, your forgiveness for each other, which we saw, uh, with uh, Susie and Scott, well, with Scott, uh, you know, this forgiveness and attraction to each other, which led to, for everybody else, a, a sexual interest um, in the rest of the station. But with Dirk, I think it would have been a forgiveness for Bart and an attraction in the sense of we we have this common thing, we understand, or we have this holisticness, and let, let's try and talk, let's be friends, let's understand that about each other. So, yeah, and in that kind of a state last night, Dirk would have been fairly incoherent, and I think Bart would have been just like, you're being weird. Like, I don't mind, but it's weird. Yeah, no, I'm glad I'm not the only one who felt that way, that that, that could have happened. Yeah, and, and so it feels like even that this morning Bart's kind of like, we should continue that conversation from last night. Are you feeling a little bit more coherent now? Uh, <laughs> to use words that she wouldn't use. But yeah, and so she's a little bit put off by Dirk suddenly going all the way back to full paranoia about her. Yeah, well, she sort of says, describes everyone as, oh, you're all laughing at each other's butts and stuff like that, <laughs> <laughs> which is quite an interesting description of that. But um, um, shall we move on to the next scene, which I Please, think is, yeah, again, yeah. a really interesting one. And one that I actually have, well, not this bit specifically, but what this sort of leads to. I, I find it really fascinating. So Susie goes to um, the Cardenas house where the mage is still sort of, after he's dealt with Hobbes, I guess he's gone back to the Cardenas house. He's hung up on the drawing that he's seen and he's moping. And Susie goes there expecting to be chewed out basically for failing to kill Dirk. But the mage isn't really that interested. None of it matters. And he's saying that look, look at this drawing. The drawings depict the way things are supposed to be in Wendemore. That he is basically the Saturday morning cartoon villain that was built the uh, the child, basically the boy, to beat easily. He was supposed to lose, and because the boy wasn't there, he did win. And he said that even when I was in Wendemore, when I was winning all these battles, it felt too easy. Like something was wrong with my world, and now I know why. And he seems really put out. Uh, it's interesting because I had not thought about this until um, a couple of times I rewatched this, that from the mage's point of view, Wendemore was the real world because it was the only one he knew. And he found this portal yeah. to our world, which he just didn't see as 
the world that superseded Wendemore. He just thought, oh, this is another world with cool stuff that I can use to get the upper hand in Wendemore. Right. And there's a hint mm. of like the gun robbery as well uh, later in this episode. What do you guys think when the mage, the mage says, I'm just a puppet, just a bad guy. All this time I was built to lose by a child. I found that really interesting. So I don't think it's the case if he sees himself as the good guy because there's no illusion of um, like, oh, and what no, I'm doing well, they, is justified or yeah, anything. There's a trope that everybody is is the hero of their own story. That the, the bad guys don't think of themselves as bad guys. They think of themselves as good guys that are doing the required thing f- to to be the good guy of their stories. Like, yeah, this is a bit questionable, but it's a good guy, but it's, it's justified. And everybody's just like, oh my God, that's so evil. The mage is not following that trope the mage is like no i'm the bad guy yeah he's always known he's a bad guy and he's now come to the realization he was made and designed by a child to be the bad guy that's it's not that's just why the, he is that way exactly yeah it's like he's, the, he's acknowledging there i am one dimensional yeah. basically yes, I am yes. exactly <laughs> that's and that's part of the despondency it's, is that i i am i am such a simple character because of the the creation by a child and another thing that I always think about when I see that scene, when you look at Windermore as it is, like not as the drawing, but as the universe, it's very much more detailed as far as even everyone has their own personality and everything than it is in the drawing, meaning that it's it's not exactly unlikely that they would have kind of like folk stories there and like similar to how at least in America, uh, our our school system was really bad about like portraying, you know, like good guy bad guy as far as wars go. Oh, especially like the American West was all that, especially with the cowboys yeah. and Indians. Like it, it could have been that same thing, and like the reason that he is realizing that he doesn't have that like development that he should is because he was thought up by a child who couldn't think beyond what he was, the way that he was taught as a child, that there was a good and a bad. Right. Like, yeah, I, we I have a similar problem like, as well, actually, with um, the history of British colonialism. With that, all the sort of bad stuff that happened under colonialism is just sort of swept down the gut. It's like, we used to own half the world, and then we didn't. And then there was a war. <laughs> and, and the war wasn't our fault, but we won anyway. Or something like that. If I'm being honest, uh, I feel like in literature and storytelling, the idea that the bad guy thinks they're the good guy is a modern concept. It's not something that's existed for centuries. Um, and this is something the boy we've already established at the beginning. This was in the 50s, wasn't it? Which was again. Right, right. Yeah, and like you can yeah. look at comics and books as far back as the '50s and see that, like, even the even like writing in in pop comics and and television, like the bad guys have just are just like two dimensionally evilly bad. Um, yeah, and so like that totally to me like makes sense. So so like I don't think it's so much as of it like undermining the modern trope of of everyone's their own hero because like that wasn't a trope. For, that hasn't been a trope for very long. That's 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 a good point. That's that's the modern trope that creates complexity in a an evil character. Right. Uh, but if if you're not interested in that complexity, then you don't write them that way. It's you you have fairy story evil instead. Shit, yeah. It's because of that exact complexity that one of the fandoms that I'm in for a comic series is still for the past like 
probably six months or so, has been locked in a debate as to whether the guy literally committing genocide is evil or not. <laughs> uh, I true. cannot be more literal with that. Yeah. Wow. Very true. And I want to talk a little bit more about uh, this moment, uh, specifically in sort of the, the major's character a little bit. Uh, do you guys remember a film called Toy Story? Yeah. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yes. Grew up on that. About show. halfway through Toy Story, Buzz Lightyear, the space ranger toy, spent the whole movie thinking he's a real astronaut space ranger, uh, only to see the um, TV advert for him, <laughs> for him as a threat. <laughs> Uh, which shatters that. This sequence Silver of the Mage reminded me of that, honestly, in that the way he thought everything was ordered is completely shattered by that moment. It's it's interesting, though, because um, I think Buzz Lightyear's first reaction to seeing that advert is there's like a Randy Newman song where initially he tries to basically reject it and think, no, it can't be true. I'm still a, a, you know, a space ranger. And then, of course, he tries to jump out the window and he falls down the stairs and his arm pops up. And he's like, oh, no, it, it, is, it is all fake. I'm all fake. Oh, dear. Mm. <laughs> and then he has a breakdown. It's interesting that I thought the mage sees this. And in the last episode, we get that, oh, no, it can't be true. This is what it's meant to be. But we sort of almost skip to him to sort of this point where he's kind of accepted it and given up. Well, Susie accuses him of giving up and he doesn't really say. Well, he sort of gives a half-hearted kind of uh, watch your mouth, you lady. You don't know who you do. And then he, Susie like, goes rants on. He just kind of shuts up and gives up. <laughs> well, I really like that moment between him and Susie where she and, and, and basically she just is like, I'm real. You might be a plaything, but I am real and I can do whatever I want. And I am and then there's the cut to like, Susie in like drinking cocktail picture or whatever it's in like a pub somewhere yeah <laughs> well like i i love that she's this worst version of self-actualization and the declaration of of i am real is like totally plays into that and i also love the mage's decision i don't think it's in that scene it's a little later um where he just decides you know what i'm gonna lose if i try doing this the way i'm supposed to do it and so screw Wendemore. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to be evil here because I like being evil. And like, yeah. I don't like, like, I don't, I don't have to win. I don't have to play that game. I just be evil here and say, screw it. Um, he gets I, his I, mojo back. <laughs> yeah. That's really actually like on the things that I don't really like. Um, you don't so. like that? What is no. there not? That is such a good <laughs> moment. Where that, he's that, just, that, Oh, no, I'm, I'm not. Let, hear me out. <laughs> I, what I don't like. Oh, well, first off, there's the fact that, like I sort of was alluding to, he kind of accepts it, in my opinion, without. So he sees the the drawings and sort of accepts that, oh, this is the way Wendemore's supposed to be. And, you know, I've, everything's a lie. And such and such. He's, he accepts it, basically. And he doesn't say, well, no, it doesn't matter. It, it, it's not going to affect my plans because of the drawing. He doesn't take the Susie option. He takes the, oh, this is real and I should accept this. And how am I going to deal with this? And so there's that later scene where he watches TV with Bob. And, and at, the, at the very end, it's the very end scene, which I put a bit in the synopsis, but whatever. I was in a hurry. Um, <laughs> he basically does uh, a 180. And I point out another film here that I watch because... Uh, when he does the switch at the end, it reminds me of a film called uh, Last Action Hero, where Charles Dance plays the bad guy in that movie. Benedict, I think is his name. Yeah, that's it. And basically, Benedict is the bad guy in a, a generic uh, early 90s 
action movie where he's the intelligent bad guy, but his schemes always backfire, always is because the hero always wins in in a 90, early 90s action flick. Uh, it's a Schwarzenegger flick as well. But um, <laughs> And what happens is the main character in Last Action Hero, which is a kid, basically uses a golden ticket to travel into the action movie, and it becomes a buddy cop movie with the Schwarzenegger character. And Charles Dance steals the ticket from the kid, and initially, it's like um, a sort of, wow, you know, everything keeps going wrong for me. I'm just going to steal shit from other worlds by traveling with this ticket. And he goes, and there's a great scene where he, he comes out of the theater and emerges in New York. It's nothing like the movie. It's like this grimy shit all. And then, like, uh, unlike in the movie, whenever there's a crime committed, the co- in the movie, the cops are, like, there within, like, 30 seconds flat or whatever in New York. He sees a guy get beaten to death. A homeless guy gets beaten to death and these people steal his shoes and he runs expecting the police to come and then nothing happens. And then he tests it further. He like shoots a guy in the middle of the street and he Charles Dance delivers it really well. He's like, I've just shot someone. Hello. I did it on purpose. And nothing happens. <laughs> and it's just like this brilliant, like a uh, really dark, darkly humorous scene. And then like uh, there's the guy in the apartment upstairs says, I'll keep it quiet down there. I'm trying to sleep. <laughs> It's a good contrast of the uh, the idealism of somebody does something genuinely bad in a movie, and you know the, the cops and the hero shows up, and the cynicism of the real world. Exactly, um, and my point is, this sort of leads him into this line of thinking that this world is cool because in this world the bad guys can win, and that's what starts his plan, which ultimately gets foiled really quickly from then on, unfortunately. I don't think that's that's the thing, though. That's not that's not at all what his motivation is. No, I'm not saying that's the mage's motivation. I just feel that in Last Action Hero, that is set up a bit better for the Benedict character, the Charles Dance character. Whereas in the mage, all his motivation at this point sort of does a 180, and I sort of find that a little bit dissatisfying because what happens forward is he basically starts a B plot from the Wendemore stuff. But what I love what I love about it, and the reason I disagree with you is that he, up until this point, upon seeing this drawing, he realizes everything he thinks he's wanted has he is wanted because a child has wanted him to want it. This moment of, is the first moment where he is really making his own decisions, and he decides that you know what, screw ruling things. I don't even like things who wants to be in charge i just want to make people miserable on a person by person basis that is what i like doing and i'm going to do that here where i can do that and there isn't i don't have to be someone else's puppet like the difference between these two stories you're describing is in the last action hero the world follows a set of rules and the guy wants to enter a world where he can still do his same motivations and have the rules work in his favor. That's not what's happening with the mage. With the mage, what's happening is he doesn't want to be someone's puppet. He wants to have control of his life. He doesn't need power. He doesn't need to win. He doesn't need control. He just wants to do the things that make him happy. And what makes him happy is being evil. And so like, that's what I love about it is because no long, it's, it's not some grand scheme. The mage doesn't want to rule the world. The mage just wants to be his own man and do the things that he wants to do. Yeah, he, he wants to be nasty and the scale doesn't matter. I think what you said about him being sadistic is reinforced by what Panto says in the next scene, where he basically says that the mage destroyed, took over most of my world and would often just crush and hurt people just for fun, basically. I think he says something like that. Well, let's talk about that, that sequence uh, with him, with, 
with Panto and uh, well, Panto's let out the cage for a start. The joke is quite. Bart has to say, him, but Panto is let out this time, <laughs> even though Bart can just escape any time, whatever. But because they need to talk to Panto, they let him out before as well to check out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're all talking. Uh, it starts off, obviously, with the picture of Susie. They're spitballing with each other, trying to figure out what the situation is. There's a great bit where Panto says something that Todd picks up on, and Todd is quite... Uh, uh, wow, that's a really good question. I'm with this guy. I'm Team Poncho. <laughs> yeah. <I'm> in- Panto. <laughs> I, I enjoy the Team Poncho moment. There's a, a the biggest moment I feel like in that scene is them realizing that they're all in danger and Dirk having another one of his patented breakdowns. Although this is my favorite Dirk breakdown of the season. Uh, it is. Does the, the breakdown not yeah. come a bit later? Um, uh, I believe he starts to panic a little bit in this scene because he realize he's the one that realizes that um the why they're trying to kill him because uh, well he realizes that they are trying. He's yeah. like he knows who I am. He'd be trying to kill me. He would be trying to kill me, of course. And then yeah. uh, is I, I thought this was the scene where they he's like I solved the case. That's how we got out of that's this. a bit I later because he, no he's still in his um tank top at this point. It's later when he gets the shirt and tie on that he does the. Oh, you're right, you're right. That is my favorite breakdown. Where, where does this scene end, then? Remind me. Uh, they, they phone, Tina decides, oh, well, we need to check that Susie is the apprentice. Or Right, they call yeah. Susie. Yeah, and, and Susie's all, why are you lying to me? And, and goes, it's the first time Susie brings out the voice. Ah, uh, yes. I really like um, where Tina is um, says, oh, you know, we got Scott in and a couple of misdemeanors. Yeah, and then um, Susie looks down at the frog, which is you know yeah. Scott, actual Scott, and like, hmm, is that so? <laughs> Why are you lying to me, Tina? And yeah. you get more of a self-actualized speech from her, where she's just like, I have, I what was, I have self-esteem. No, she's tired of putting out all the bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> and she's, she's, I will bathe in your blood. It's <laughs> a great line. She, she, it, it starts off because she knows that the other end is lying. There's no uncertainty about it. They, she can't question herself. She's got the evidence right there in front of her croaking. Uh, and I think that's that's what gets her you know, that that next step to that self-confidence. That, you know, well, that she also she do. feels embarrassed as well. After yeah, not yeah. Well, that's that, that embarrassment fuels the anger that keeps that going. But but I think it's the absolute certainty of she's being lied to and manipulated to in this very moment uh, that that gets her going. That that gives her that first step of like com- that first confidence step of why are you lying to me? Because in the past, even even with the power that she's got up to this point, if she didn't have that absolute certainty, she wouldn't take that step. I also love during the the slow zoom on Susie's face as she just looks com- more and more demented, and uh, Amanda Walsh does a really great job of uh, selling self-actualized Susie starting to go completely bonkers and just thinking of instantly going to violent uh, resolutions. And uh, Tina sort of points this out to and sort of like, well, it sounds like you're threatening violence to a police officer. And then she just gets interrupted and saying, like, I will kill all of you. <laughs> she gets the voice out. I think Susie ends the call and uh, Farrah says, uh, uh, I think uh, you need to give me my gun back now, Tina. It's <laughs> such a good moment. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, she gets real, and everyone looks completely freaked out, but Dirk especially. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then I think it's back to Blackwing. 
And yes, it is. Ken was also interesting wearing a dressing gown with his um the uh, Project Alpha logo on it. So that that raises a lot of questions to me of do Blackwing just have uh, a bunch of um, dressing gowns for all the subjects with the logos right. on it. Do they have one just for Project Alpha in case there was a Project Alpha and that would fit in the these robes? <laughs> it just raises a lot of questions to me. And, and Project Alpha is somebody that they care about enough to treat like a human instead of yeah, you know, an energy vampire who they're going to lock up and and dunk in a well. Oh well, he's raised, <laughs> he's got raised clearance now, so <laughs> they don't need to put him in the coffin and it's like that one. Into the computer. Yeah. Freaking uh, wants Ken to bring back the Rowdy Free somehow, and Ken's like, nah, forget about that. All we got to focus on is Berg's book. <laughs> I love yeah. how he just pivots there and doesn't answer the question. He notices that um, oh, the motel got shut up, but the police, uh, there was no police reaction whatsoever and in, in Berg's book. And uh, what Ken doesn't realize is that the Berg's book police department is just two people. <laughs> <laughs> Although he's got there, um, he obviously knows, oh, that's the sheriff and that's the deputy. Right. The, the other thing I want to point out about this scene is is the very start of it, where he's like, can we not talk about my errors? And he's like, that's <laughs> literally all there are here. Like, it's all errors. It's just mistake after mistake after mistake. And he's like, I, ju- I, I know, just fix it. It's, uh, I, I thought that was kind of like a bit of a funny moment coming. Well, it's also um, Ken getting his own back on freaking a little bit. Yeah, it definitely resets the relationship between Ken and Friedkin. At the beginning of this season, Ken was the one begging Friedkin for help, and and now we are in now like the the shoe is fully on the other foot. We, the tables are completely turned, and now Friedkin is is taking shit from Ken, um, and uh, you know basically like begging him to kind of do what needs to be done and letting him have as much a reign as he needs to. I also feel like Ken's living quarters are way nicer than Friedkin's. Uh, Ken's one just looks bigger for some reason to me. Maybe it's because he's got the dog as well. Ken comes up with the idea of, oh, we need to know what's going on with the police in Berg, so let's track their cars and see where they are. He says, oh, Priest is still there. You can tell Priest to do that. And then he's like, oh, actually, can I speak to Priest directly? And Friedkin is like, "Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, when I talk to him, he doesn't listen to me, so you may as well talk to him. Yeah. And that's when Ken says, uh, says, oh, in order to do that, you would realize I'm going to need higher clearance. And Freakin doesn't resist. Just like, yeah, yeah of course. Always, every time we talk about this, I'm reminded about your little holistic manipulator comment. Oh, the one that Hell yeah. I made, yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember how long ago that was, but it was a while back. That came about from various discussions on uh, uh, Reddit about is... Uh, is Ken a holistic something? And you know, various people have their opinions that he is or he isn't. Uh, you know, he's he's a project of Blackwing now, but is that just because they <clears throat> they obtained him while he was hanging out with Bart, who is a project, or has via some mechanism is being recognised? Yeah, they go. They cut back to Rowdy Free and yes, Rowdy Free in, in Windermore in the um, the Wacky's den. <laughs> and then he needs a whacktease crack den, but I don't think all the Wendler habits are on drugs yet. <laughs> Keyword yet. It's just after they've beaten the really inconsequential number of Kellum Knights or whatever, and some of them are playing around with the um, cube head uh, helmets that they have. Cross 
uh, says something like, uh, oh, I don't, don't like these cupids. It can't handle it. Too many dimensions for me. Or something like that. <laughs> like, three dimensions are one too many. <laughs> Martin has a sort of bit of a catch-up with Amanda. Amanda's sort of like, well, I thought once you guys had got here, you would want to go home instantly. And then he's he basically says, no, you know, you're our leader now because you got us out of that hellhole. So... You know, we're going to stand by you and follow you around no matter where you go, which is, is a nice moment because she clearly wants to stay as well. And I think Martin can sort of see that without her having to say it, which is nice as well. I think it's a great moment. I really enjoy that moment because because uh, and as is sort of a, a hanger on of the Rowdy Three in the first season, right? She kind of joins up with them. They're punk. She's punk. They're having a good time. She's enjoying her time with them. But Martin is very much in charge um of of like he's giving them orders he's trying to do what's right for all of them trying to keep everybody safe um even at the end of season one he tells vogel to take amanda and go they fight off blackwing and so this moment where he's like you're in charge drummer this you know i think that's a very sweet moment and it 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 feels like a nice way for the power to shift in that relation and for her to feel like she's trusted I also like how um, he still calls her drummer girl because that's of course how they met. She was playing the drums to try and make them <laughs> go away. Yeah, I, I, I find Martin very sweet in this scene. Like, you know, he's he's completely understanding, and you're know, like the, the rowdies have this reputation of being rowdy. That's what you think of them as, and Martin is this quiet, thoughtful center of them. You know, he's he's the natural leader of the original four. I also noticed in the background that uh, Farson is still hanging around with them. He's uh, Silas's brother. Uh, oh, yeah. Farson, and he's trying to put a glove on the Vogel's head. <laughs> like this. My favorite joke in this sequence is when they're trying to figure out where they are. It's like, this is not Mars, but it could be Canada, right? Like, that guy's Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the joke is really funny once you know it's all shot in Vancouver as well. <laughs> and uh, they are that, that, that adds a good meta. <laughs> Uh, your humor to it, but uh, yeah, the innocent naivety and, and weirdness of the other outies is great, uh, and there's not enough of it in the show, I think. Yeah, but it's sort of a a consequence of having so many different characters to get between. Yeah, yeah. There's like uh, I think Martin says something like, "Hey, you want to stay here and learn crazy magic? Then you, you do that, man. We're all for that." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's a vision Amanda has, I think, uh, later on. She's, yeah. I was going to say she, she's working with Wakti Wapnasi and trying to control her visions and her power. And she's using the the um, pool. Wakti's trying to kind of talk her through it and be a mentor. Um, I think the, the the great line in that moment is like, I thought you were punk. And she's like, yeah. I am punk. And then she like sticks her hand in the pool and then it comes out and she's having a turbulatus attack and there's a knife in her hand. We got an email uh, after recording this podcast from Chip who said, uh, great podcast. I don't know if this was in season two, episode five or six, but I wanted to make sure you all mention the line the witch says to Amanda when Amanda is struggling against learning her powers. And I thought you were punk. This is one of my favorite lines from the season and I still remember it a year later. Thanks, Chip. I think it's one of Jesse's favorite lines too. Anyway, let's get back to it. Yeah, does yeah. the knife, is it me that it looks really obvious that she's just got the knife in between her fingers and they just put some uh, No, I, it, I think it that... looks like that at first, but then later on you see the knife is actually much wider than that. And so it's. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. It looks like there must be a cut in the knife in 
yeah, because it's, it's clearly and, and that's piercing your head. Yeah, it's it's a stage knife with a cut, so it fits around, so it looks like it's jammed through. But on a casual glance, you're seeing the part in front of the fingers, and it's not so clear that there's intended to be a part that's through the fingers. It's uh, right. Yeah, um, but she then pulls the knife out of her hand, and the knife is real, and is gone, and that's like a, a big moment of her taking control of her parabulitis in this magical realm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's sort of turning what's been a crutch for, for so long into an actual kind of strength, uh, a superpower, I think it's later called. Uh, but um, I also love when she finally goes, um, I'm a witch, I am a witch goo goo thingy. And, yeah, and then Wakti trills. Yeah, she does that really weird, Argh! I can't do it, it's like Zoidberg <laughs> in <Pete> Drama. <laughs> <laughs> Then I think the next bit is when we oh that's when we get the vision sorry because I think yeah. she has an attempt in the first uh, of the training sequence and then we actually do get the vision later on after the uh, scene at the hospital and we see a couple of things we see priest with um, scar down his face with a couple of plasters in it we see Panto asleep we see Dirk turned around in some kind of weird um, uh, place with flowers which we do see later we see oh is that or Susie, I forget which one. Uh, just looking forward with a little blood on her face. Uh, which of a hat on her head, and then it cuts to Susie using an axe, I think, <laughs> which I don't remember <laughs> happening later on. Did she ever get an axe out? Uh, oh, I think I remember that is that. And then we see the army of knights, which is the thing that Amanda really specifically picks up on the Keller Knights. And then the rowdy free symbol, I think, at the end. Um, the threat is basically established. Saying, oh, if, if you've seen the knights, that means they're probably quite close. And Wacky also mentions that, um, oh, I can't, I don't get visions when I use the pool. I, and she basically alludes to, oh, I have a friend who helps me. She can't see into the, into into our world when she That's uses it, the pool. Yeah. And so she uses Mona's eyes. She sees That's through it. Mona's eyes. It's later revealed to be Mona. Scope. Yeah, but yeah, there's hinted at. So. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Mona is sort of one of those characters that sort of doesn't appear until very late <laughs> again yeah. well proper but she did appear in the first episode yeah. um, and then uh, and then basically amanda goes out to the rowdy three and says hey i think there are some bad nights coming i need you guys to go out and look and martin says it's done and has does a cool like take a sip of his water pour the rest out and they go off on their way i like the goggles that martin's got as well yeah, little... they're nice yeah, yeah. Sure. those were in the auction i think they were yeah <laughs> And um, yeah, so that's pretty much all the Wendemore stuff. So shall we go back to the uh, sheriff's department? And, Please. Yeah, so Tina is freaking out because she has this phone. Dr. Hobbs and realize he tried to voicemail me, but I had my phone on silent because we were at the gig. And she basically relays what Hobbs said. And we saw him sending a message in the end of the previous episode where he's like, he was at the Cardinal's house. He saw some weird shit going down. And, and Tina, so Tina starts to freak out. Well, she says he was nervous, and Hobbs is never nervous. Yeah, that's actually an interesting little uh, observation. And so there's a bit of panic of what to do, and then I think this is where uh, Dirk chimes in with his, uh, this is what we should do. We should just go to the hospital. He says we should go to the hospital because that's that way the least people will die. Dirk doesn't want to go to the Cardenas' house because he doesn't think Hobbs, Hobbs is, doesn't think there's any clues there. He's still trying to be a normal detective. So he wants to talk to um, the Cardenas guy in the hospital because he's the only lead. Funny. He's the obvious thing. And he also says, like, we're going to get out of this because I solved the case. Ah, uh, yes. Hospital. The place where nobody dies at all. It's not like anyone's <laughs> in critical condition there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Well, it's also the place to go if you get hurt, though. <laughs> oh, no, that's certainly true. I mean, all the help will be right there. Right? So Dirk is kind of having a, still a freak out of people are going to get hurt. People are going to get hurt. How do we stop people from getting hurt? And he's like, I've got it. I've solved it. I've solved the case. The case is solved. We found the boy. That's all I had to do was find the boy. And we found him. <laughs> And so he's, and so he's just like, I'm gonna just. I snap, definitely snap. decided that Arnold. Did. <laughs> like yeah, that. my favorite part is like, close enough. Like, did it? That's my new thing now. Did it? <laughs> and that sequence is so much fun. It's just, <laughs> it's very manic. It's very, uh, it's very well done. And so it's this, and and you can the way it's done because he's panicked because you know he's afraid. And you know he's making this decision out of fear. You, the audience, know he's making the wrong decision. You also know he's making the wrong decision because he's not following the holistic approach. He's doing the obvious, logical, deductive thing, which is how people get hurt. That's what that's what Dirk is not explicitly not supposed to be doing when he's trying to solve. Yeah, it. and they yeah later end up at the Cardinus house afterwards anyway. Right. Yes. They get they get back on track in the long run, but he's so afraid of doing the thing. His instincts are, are, I assume, his, his holistic instincts are telling him is the thing he should do. Um, yeah, it's kind of Dirk's fault that Arnold gets killed. <laughs> no it is. Only kind of. Obviously, I think uh, Susie is the main reason that Arnold gets killed, surely. Actually, I'm kind of thinking about it. Because um, Susie asks the mage, oh, you know where the boy is, and, and you let him live? <laughs> and So I think Susie must ascertain somehow from the mage where Arnold is because I think right. because Mage is convinced that oh Dirk's already found the boy, so he must think that it's Arnold. So I think Susie was gonna go to the hospital anyway. Or was she going where Dirk was going? I, I think she was going to the hospital anyway to take care of Arnold. Yeah. I think that's, either that's way it was a loose thread that she would have would have had, felt she would have had to tie up at some point. As for the little uh, rant that Dirk does I think it's really well acted. I agree it's a good scene showing Dirk doing the wrong theme thing. And I don't know, I think first time I watched it, I didn't think it was a hugely funny scene because I felt more sort for Dirk sort of starting to lose his mind a bit. And uh, especially the, the way they cut to Todd and Farrah's kind of reaction as well. But especially when he sort of tries to force this did it catchphrase and it's really unnatural. That felt a little kind of Part of me was thinking, oh, God, are they just going to try and force this into being Dirk's thing now? And it just made me feel a bit like, oh, that's no, but I, I, th I think that's Dirk trying to force it into being his thing. He's trying to yeah. He's trying to push the, this. Is like, Yo, if I say that I've done it enough and make it quirky enough and make it my thing, then it will be the thing, right? It's not like politicians saying, if I just keep saying this enough times and everyone will accept yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with you guys on that. One, the one thing about that sequence that i was a little i don't know about displeased but it just hit me the wrong way is is todd and and Farrah's sort of non-reaction to his freak out i don't know there's, there's just something about the way that they're like is he okay i don't know but let's go it, it's it, it feels like it, it loses it, it done with the empathy and care that i would expect these three characters to have for each mm. other the, the the plot insisted that they move and yeah yeah, you know, ignore the character requirements. Right. We get um, Priest in the truck. He's uh, watching, and he says, "Whoever said to put the um, GPS on the police vehicles? Uh, get that guy a donut." <laughs> I love the way yeah. he just said, "Get that guy a donut." <laughs> it just seems like a 
like that's the biggest honor you can bestow on someone <laughs> just the way he says it uh, so we go to the hospital and then i think we get uh, another uh, candidate for a uh, john dollar award for least memorable character comes in and that is um rizio who the other police officer from somewhere else in montana he recognizes tina and comments that he she's working for hobbs now and then faris and tina is sort of just like doesn't know what to say because she clearly doesn't remember this guy at all and i don't blame her yeah and then farrah jumps in and she doesn't remember him or if he's like a fling that she well that's possible but um i I think it was just purely bluff she's just going with the everybody yeah if you pretend to know somebody they're they're going like oh yeah i remember you and you leverage that oh so you're saying that uh rizio is bluffing at tina and then farrah is bluffing at rizio no no (laughs) that's really funny rizio is genuine to tina and then farrah is bluffing at rizio oh no absolutely that's how i think that sorry i got a bit confused by the way all right right. who'd be talking about here (laughs) (laughs) growing up in the midwest i do think the highlight scene is farrah's accent (laughs) it's like such a she picks a really funny name marnie i'm pretty sure it's marnie so so she uh bluffs the cop uh, to get the intel about the guns being stolen. and Because yeah, uh, I think she tries to get him to say, oh, have you been in contact with Hobbs recently? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. Uh, he says he hasn't either, because, and uh, that's annoying because he wants trying to report in an arms robbery, which we know Hobbs is sort of still the end of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He mentions that um, all the suspects disappeared in uh, like a puff of thin air or something like that. Oh, she's uh, again a bit suspicious. But there was some gold bars involved, a big K on them, like something out of a fairy tale. And that's what tips off Dirk. Oh, it's, that's the mage is doing. Right. And then we get the scene with Arnold where uh, <laughs> Dirk and Todd come in, but uh, uh, Farrah and Tina, I think, wait outside as bodyguards effectively. Maybe that's why it's called Girl Power, because I guess in this whole sequence in the hospital, Farrah and Tina are basically doing all the um, gun action and bodyguarding. Against the female antagonist. Oh, yeah. Of course. The female antagonist has got girl power written on her sweater. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so there's a scene with Arnold where uh, basically Dirk and Todd ask, ooh, how do we get to Windermore, I think, is the the last question that they ask. And and Arnold is like, oh, go away. (laughs) I just want to be left alone. And he says, Windermore isn't real. And if it is... I'll never be forgiven. That's it. And then he talks a bit about his parents, basically, and that they were always fighting about something. And things got really bad when the Keller Mining Corporation offered to buy out their land. And his mum was all on board with that. But dad wasn't. Dad was fiercely sort of protective. And then mum came back with the expensive car that uh, the Kellum Corporation had paid for. And then that was when he lost both of his parents in one night. And he mentions the scissors as well. And Todd sort of infers that it was the mum that killed the dad, that uh, Marina killed Hector, basically. Mm. That, that, how does that involve the FBI? You call them because your mum killed your dad, right? Arnold gives a couple of vague answers at this point. He's like, he's like Windermore was supposed to be a safe haven. That's it, yeah. That was like kind of the gist of it. And then they start the chase sequence through the hospital. But uh, before Susie enters the hospital, you get the shot of Priest watching Susie enter the hospital as she, next duct- scene, yeah. Yeah, as she duct tapes the wand to her hand, which is a great sort of like, not going to let that happen again. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> <laughs> like- <laughs> I did love that. That seems like a very kind of, especially I like the image 
uh, in a baggy sort of uh, face still and hair still covered in muck and just grabbing the roll of sellotape and just wrapping it around. <laughs> it's just a great vision. I mean, outside of the fact that it clearly works visually to have her blood and crap, like she totally could have cleaned herself up with magic. It's not clear to me why she doesn't. I think it, it's purely a, a visual gag to make her look more. I think fierce. Susie's gone full in Terminator mode. She's yeah. like a singular goal. She's not going to be distracted from it. I love what Priest says. He's like, things are getting distinctly supernatural. <laughs> we get Ken chime in. We do get a cut back to Blackwing. Ken is changed from his dressing gown into his Project Alpha jumpsuit. They have also prepared for him, which again raises further questions <laughs> about how Blackwing actually organizes. All. Well, I guess all the other subjects have the specific jumpsuits, so that can be explained away a bit more easier. But I just think, is there someone who has to sew these? Like, <laughs> yeah, they have a they have a tailor. <laughs> works, it works gotta, double time apparently. Uh, <laughs> or maybe they've had two months to make all this. Uh, imagining, oh, what if uh, Ken gets promoted, or what if the Rangers <laughs> get promoted, or this. Uh, Different scenario. Different. This is all just, yeah, government spending bloat or something along those lines. Yeah. They're just like, ah, we better. Uh, we got the money. When Wilson up the budget, this was the kind of thing that they had in mind. Yeah. Freaking introduces Ken and says, "Oh, this is Ken. He knows Dirk <laughs> or something like that." But I'm still in charge. This, this is my friend Ken, which I think is so <laughs> interesting because not only is Ken certainly not his friend, but he doesn't introduce Ken as like any as being any particular authority. Yet, uh, Ken and Priest's relationship is a, a, a really great one on the radio. I like how also that that happens. Uh, that's he's introduced that way, and Priest is just like, "Oh, okay, <laughs> whatever." <laughs> just like he doesn't really care who's in charge at this point uh, yeah. until uh, he sees Susie go in, and Susie starts uh, slaughtering uh, the hospital attendants in, and uh, Officer Rizzio. Uh, it lasted all of 30 seconds in this episode. Being yeah, fl flying metal sh just flying into people. It's like, the shapes that we saw her throw, a similar to the ones she threw at Bart, but this time... Who, is, who got better. off very lucky. Yeah. Yeah, no, she just, the shapes basically fly through the air and they don't, they don't have entrance wounds, they just so suddenly, like, clip into the people and kill yeah. them, basically. Uh, that little thing I like, a little detail, as Susie's walking and trying to bite off. She has not bought scissors as well, ironically enough, given the theme motif of this season. She just bites the tape of her mouth to split it, which I like. And she's walked next to the ambulance, and the ambulance is actually a Bergsberg ambulance uh, with the Bergsberg uh, county name on the side, which is a nice little attention to detail. Because hmm. <laughs> you could just put Montana ambulance or something. So I guess this is when, after Susie starts blasting off, this is when... Uh, priest decides, right, I'm getting in there, i got to make sure Project Icarus isn't compromised, basically. Yeah, Ken gives him very specific orders, and they are secure Project Icarus, uh, only engage if he's in danger, and then he's like, what about the civilians and the accomplices? And he's and then Ken like pauses and says, Project Icarus is the priority. And he's like, oh, <laughs> Ken, I like you. Or something like, it's like, <laughs> I like you, Ken, or something like that. And uh, It's the beginning of a beautiful relationship. Yeah, and, and <laughs> so basically, Ken, Ken does not care about keeping anyone alive. Care, Ken cares about Project Incubus. I like the dynamic between Ken and Priest. I don't like that line, especially, um, because it's not clear to me why Ken feels that way. I actually took that line as Priest asks, how much do we care about the innocents? And Ken's not wanting to go full on, 
I don't care is skirting answering the question going like, oh, Icarus is the priority and letting Priest interpret it. And you're giving himself a little bit of plausible deniability uh, if things really go badly there. It's like, well, I didn't say to kill the innocents in his pursuit of thing. I said, that's the priority. It's not my fault that he took it the wrong way. Sure, sure. I see that. I also feel on not engaging unless Icarus is in danger, which I find interesting because I think Ken understands that he wants to observe Icarus because he thinks a connection thing is going on. At least that's my read of it. And yet, when we get to the end of this episode, that is not what is happening with Priest. Priest is engaging and just trying to bring Icarus in. Possibly without orders from Ken, unclear. I guess old habits die hard, you know? Yeah. Maybe that. Maybe those are orders given screen but um so that that all happens then we cut to we're in the hospital susie's going on a rampage they're not sure yeah, where this whole hospital sequence i mentioned terminator this does feel a lot like terminator it's very terminator Especially, um, well it's almost terminator too because we got priest and susie who are both terminator esque i guess <laughs> yeah i feel yeah the biggest couple of moments in that action the gratuitous murders one of them is uh ferris says you know tina cover me or like, uh, and Tina basically runs across the hall, shooting relatively blindly. Susie just creates a spell that absorbs all the bullets. And then once Tina takes cover, Farrah comes out and just Susie. Headshot her, um, yeah. Sorry. And one thing that bothered me the slightest bit about this, and maybe it shouldn't have, is that it's unclear to me what, what exactly we're supposed to take out of that shot. Are we supposed to, to believe that she was shot and it entered her head and she, through magic, is pulling the bullet back out? Uh, I don't know. That's I, I, what I I'm, control, someone, yeah. I'm someone who is actually relatively familiar, familiar with firearms. I've grow, grown up with firearms. I've shot firearms. Uh, a, a gun of that caliber that, that Farah is using is a gun that will create an exit wound that will blow the entire back of Susie's head off if that bullet enters her head. That's the way that gun would work. Um, it wouldn't. The bullet wouldn't stay in her. The bullet certainly wouldn't stop at her skull. And the way the shot is is made to look, it doesn't feel like she catches it and it only entered like the front of her head. It feels like she got shot. She took that hit, and then the wand comes up and she pulls the bullet out of her brain. Yeah, that's that's very much how I interpret it, and that 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 doesn't make sense with the gun that Farah has. Um, I don't know firearms, so that's not something I would pick up. It it makes sense now that you say it, but it's it's a police. Also have uh, to remember I, yeah. that removing the bullet just causes more bleeding often. You know, it just <laughs> well, you take it out and it opens the wound further. In a lot of cases, not all, but most. That's mostly going to be a thing with knives and caliber bullets uh, that particular gun is a police firearm that creates massive exits it just is Susie just pulling the bullet out or is she repairing that bit of her skull a little bit as well she just doesn't think to stop the bleeding I, it, there's clearly a hole right in the front of her head where a bunch of blood pours out so any healing yeah. that she did really didn't try to finish i definitely think she suffered a bit she suffers a bit of brain damage going forward because she just becomes more and more unhinged <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that's just her that. character style, but it may, yeah. you, know, you, you could go with that. Um, but, but this is not the turning point. Yeah. The turning point, like you said, was much earlier, especially when right. she 
Froggyvice Scott, or even earlier when she zombifies Bob, maybe. <laughs> no, I think I do think the frog moment and this this episode solidifies Susie's character. Um, Susie doesn't change after this episode. Um, so Tina gets stuck behind the door and yes, uh, Tina, separated. Tina gets from separated. And luckily, Susie doesn't think to finish her off. I think she was aiming for Tina and missed and just got the door instead, I think. If I Tina correct. shut the door barely behind her. Yeah. Um, so, so Tina sort of got off by the skin of her teeth there. And then they come to a door which Fran needs to shoot open. And Arnold says something. It's interesting about this thing. Like, no, there has to be another way. And they sort of ignore him and say, no, we need to get through this door. And then when they're looking away, Arnold gets up. And he's walked off, and the next time we see him, he's got a shape thrown to him. So I sort of imagine that he, that's him sacrificing himself to give the others time to get away, maybe? Oh, yeah, it's unclear. I think on some level, he thinks that anything from Wendemore can't hurt him. Um, like, I, I, I would believe that, at least. I don't, I don't know. He still thinks it's not real, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't think it's real, and so he's like... Oh. Well, he sort of entertains the possibility a little bit, but yeah. Right, right. Um, and so that's kind of my take on that. Um, just one last thing with the firearms. Farah shoots that lock off without even looking at it. it it's super dangerous what she's doing. <laughs> um, <and I laughs> yeah. don't believe that does not feel like a trained firearms operative. Yeah. This is when I think Priest catches up to them. Yeah, I, I think the big, the big moment for Priest is Susie. I think they do manage to get out through that door finally and Susie's trying to track them down and Priest finds Susie and she says like who are you and he's like wouldn't Wouldn't you like to know know. (laughs) and he just guns her down and she falls through a window this has been shown in earlier episodes but he clearly gets off on this there is a a level of ecstasy yeah he does this big grin as he's like uh, putting holes in Susie (laughs) Well, it's not just that he puts holes in her. He then he then looks, checks to see where her body is, and her body is gone. And he and this excites him further. Things got a little zany. I think is the line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When because uh, I think Ken or it must be Ken who's asking like what's happening there, and the friend then on priest decides he's gonna pursue them basically. Yeah, I think he says things things got a little zany, and then he oh I've missed Blackwing. That's um, <laughs> something along those lines. Uh, yeah, and so then Ferris steals a car, and whose car is this? Uh, don't 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 miss they it. They won't <laughs> miss it. Yeah, and but Dirk is completely crestfallen at this point because he's killed the. Again, I, I think it's justified in this instance because he basically feels like, understandably, that he's responsible for Arnold's death and that the boy's dead, and that that's it basically. Right. And I think that's why I feel like this episode, uh, if you don't know the full of the story, this episode like Empire Strikes Back. This is a very down ending. It, they, it feels like every like they've lost. It just feels like, okay, well, how are they going to fix everything? The only, like, the boy is clearly dead. We don't know. Like, I still, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, tons of other people have died. So one thing I noticed uh, as they were going to the car is that Todd has the air gun with him. He's had the air gun this whole time. And not that would have been a, That would have been a fantastic weapon to use against Susie because it would physically knock her down. It's not just a bullet that enters a brain. It just like, no, let's push you away because that's that's what her weapons are doing. As, and for the purposes of the plot, Todd has the air gun so that they can take it to Wendemore later on. It, you know, he has it at the end of the episode. Uh, um, but yeah, you're forgetting, not... Nemo, this episode's called Girl Power. 
So they can't have. Yeah, yeah. Well, they have, it has to true. be Farrah and uh, Tyrion. It's, it's, the it's, moments but, but, but that's not like Farrah could have gone like, "You've got the air gun. Give it to me." Oh, Just, yeah. <laughs> it's it, it's a weapon that was there with them that is, is a story specific weapon that. Uh, yeah. I think t I would believe Tina using the air gun more than I believe Farrah using the air gun. Like in terms of characters yeah. and consistent, I don't think that that using that weapon makes sense. I like. Uh, I think that Farah would prefer a gun. Like we obviously, knowing the mechanics of the universe, are like, oh yeah, the air gun that would work. But like, if you're a trained operative who is like is going up against something, it's like I'm gonna use this gun that I know how to use, and this thing is gonna die to bullets, right? And like, to be fair, in Todd's case, he's mainly pushing. The... Also, in Todd's case, he is a coward. He has been oh, yeah. a coward for a season and a half. Um, but no, I do think that in the scene, it does absolutely make sense that those are the two people fighting against Susie. Like, there's no one else in their party who remotely makes sense uh, in terms of being brave or trying to put up that fight. And Tina doesn't even yeah. really want to. Like, Tina, uh, like, does it, but she's, like, you know, running across the hallway really, really afraid to be doing the thing. Yeah, Farrah is the only one who really sort of keeps her cool for this whole situation. Which sort of yeah. makes sense. Because she's been in pretty tough scopes before and kept her cool. Um, and so Dirk being really down, uh, I think, again, it makes sense this time. But again, it's, I, I hate to say it, but it's like another episode in the row where we, we get depressed Dirk again. It feels like um, we have him for a while, I think, like the whole of the next episode. I think the biggest problem with this entire season and Dirk is I don't think they have an arc for Dirk. And I don't think... Being a bit like, sad that things aren't going well isn't really an art. <laughs> no, it's not. And like Dirk, he is a flat character that is not supposed to change, especially. He he builds relationships, but he already has all the relationships he needs to have. So there's yeah. like there's nothing for him to gain outside of a, maybe a relationship with Bart, but they don't do it. And so yeah, like because they don't do anything with Bart. Well, hardly any. It, it's true. Uh, well, this episode I do like what they how they end. But like the first season, you're getting to know Dirk, and it's wonderful. This season, you're waiting for Dirk to develop as a character or for anything interesting to happen. But he's just he's a he's a MacGuffin with um, but that talks funny. Talks like how American people imagine British people. <laughs> yeah, I think there is a little bit of that. Yeah, no, I mean you said it. we've got depressed. Dirk. It's not that I'm depressed. It's that. I need a character to grow and change and have a drive and a want. And Dirk, you know, I've talked about this with Ken, but I, I like Dirk just is like, I'm going to do my thing and I'm going to solve these mysteries. And oh no, I don't like solving these mysteries. Oh, well maybe it won't go wrong this time. Oh no, everything's going wrong again. And I'm just like, okay, you're, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for you to become an a more interesting character. And like, hopefully you will eventually, but it just didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, shall we get back to, uh, there's two scenes I think already that are worth. There are there are two detail. scenes. So yeah, there's uh, Bart and uh, Pento in the cells. I think the next one because we already talked about Wendell. Yeah. Um, uh, so so Bart it, is having a feast. Can I just list some of the things? Yeah, please, please, Bart please. Is, please. So she's got a tin of spam, wonderful spam. Uh, <laughs> Quaker oats. <laughs> the Quaker oats. What looks like a um, a chocolate bar of some sort. Some a can of Pringles, which she's eating at the. She's got Nutella and she's got like I think a fork in the Nutella, <laughs> which is great. Uh, it's something I recognize. There's a jar of jam, 
this is all stuff that was left to them. It's, I think Panther says they left us this because they thought they wouldn't be coming back. <laughs> this is about the last them <laughs> indefinitely. There's a can of Ritz, which are a bunch of potato chips, as you'd say, not crisps. Like so here's a can of soup, I think. Uh, pickles. Uh, some drink of some description that I haven't got a good angle of. Uh, and two jugs of milk. And Butler's quite happy just to chow down on this. Well, but Bart lives in the moment. She's she's That's not it. one for analysing the reasons for things beyond, hey, I've got some food and I'm hungry, I'll eat. I think Panto starts going on about um, how, look, you know, uh, the, ma- the mage is here. Previously, Panto's has been sitting in the cell going, well, you know, I'm happy to wait and see how things play out because I've already found Dirk and I'm, you know, things aren't going too badly. And then this one, he starts freaking out and saying, look, you know, the mage is here, then I want to be back with my family to fight alongside them because I think they're in danger too. Bart sort of questions him on this and he says, look, you know, I need your help here. Screw the universe. He basically rejects Bart's uh, philosophy and said, like, look, screw the universe, screw fate, all the other Ritka stuff. We need, you need to get out of this cell here because we're not going to stay here while all the cool stuff happens around us. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think that's 100% what it is. I'm kind of putting my own viewpoint in. Yeah, there's definitely, you've you've added some spin there. Um, I think that Bart initially doesn't question him. She says, I'm not supposed to leave. That's it, yeah. I think she genuinely didn't realize she was wronging people by all of murder. And she can, she cannot murder people if she's safe in this cell and she has food. And so she can just stay here and just play things out and we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think she had a line earlier where she's like, I don't kill anyone. Yeah, that's something like, I'm not doing that anymore. So it, she'd sort of implied that she had changed a bit or that Definitely. she was going to try and change. Yeah. And uh, that feels like what they've been going for. Yeah, it, I, it is. And this moment is Panto's moment of basically saying to Bart, What do you want? Like, when are you, you're trying to break free and have your own free will. Now it's time to use it. Will you help me? Do you want to help me? Like, do you really care about who I am and what I want? And are you willing to, you know, put yourself in danger and put yourself out of this comfort zone to come with me and, and you know, help not only get me out of here, but save, save my people, save, save everyone I know, you know, maybe start a new life together in this other world. And like, I think that's a really great moment for Bart that we've been waiting for all season. Like, we've basically been waiting you know, four episodes from when she went in the cell to now for her to have a drive, have a motivation, want to do something. And uh, it's it's exciting to me seeing the confusion and unsuredness on her face of, well, what if I get hurt? Well, what if I kill someone? Like, you know, there's all of these bad things that like she factually knows can happen uh, when when she does the things she's not supposed to do. That's also interesting that he offers sort of like a fairy tale kind of not not necessarily happily ever after, but a sort of fairy tale world and that sort of anathema to everything that Bart has known and experienced up to this point. She's seen and almost been the harsh thing in the world, and now she's getting the chance to being offered to her to sort of experience something almost the complete opposite of that, and she's not sure whether she really wants to go with that. Well, that was my interpretation of it anyway. Maybe I'm maybe I'm misremembering or getting stuff wrong there. But if, if I get something wrong, it's not because I am intentionally doing it wrong. It's usually because I'm misremembering. Hmm. <laughs> Shall we move on to the probably the last major scene, which is 
uh, back at the Cardenas house. Uh, yeah, I think. I think they get out of the car, Dirk drops down <laughs> and defeat. Told his like, look, we have to try and get to Wendy Moore through here, even though they don't really know how. And Farah basically trusts Todd on this and decides almost to sort of t- uh, not not sacrifice herself, but sort of take one for the team and sort of buy them some time, basically. Uh, Farrah's been quite confident that she's not going to die. Which is yeah, well, I mean, she thinks that she can beat whoever. They, they see Black, right? And so she's like, you guys get inside. I don't think that they ne- she necessarily thinks they'll find Wendemore, but I do think that like she needs to protect them and she feels like I can take this one guy on. Um, I do think there's an interesting power level display here in Priest literally one-shotting Pharaoh. He just clotheslines her and knocks her out in one hit. Yeah, his, his, his dodge hit and she's down and uh, it, it demonstrates very well because, well, Todd has amazing confidence that Farrah can deal with anybody. This really shows where, where Priest is competence-wise. I like the line also, I think there's a need for violence here. (laughs) (laughs) I do think it's interesting. Priest initially doesn't want to fight her. Um, He's like, look, you've filed board me with all of that. Just let me get these guys. And she's like, no, no, there's a need for violence. It felt like it kind of cut Farrah's feet out from under her in terms of getting taken down like that. Well, they needed to split her up from... I'm fine with her losing that fight. I, I guess I would have liked to see. I mean, I, it may be that they were like cramped for time and they couldn't do a full fight sequence. It may be that the day of the shoot, maybe they had something choreographed, but the actors just weren't able to make it happen. It feels both like a lazy fight. It doesn't do justice to Farah, and it doesn't build Priest up in a way that goes anywhere. Building him up as this guy that can one-shot Farah never has payoff later in the season. For, for that specific skill, I agree, but as, as a general sense, it shows that when, in a general sense, when it comes to violence, Priest is good at it. And it's, Sure, but we know but that. It, but it's multifaceted. We've seen that he's good with the gun skills and the, the big team skills, and this is just a one-on-one. Sure, sure, hand-to-hand combat. I, I grant yeah. you, I don't even think it showed that he's good at hand-to-hand combat. It showed that he's strong enough to close her out in one hit, which, again... The entire, like the, the rest of this season is going to be him dealing with things off screen or be basically cowering in front of Bart. Um, like that's mm-hmm. basically what we have to look forward to. It, it would be one thing to have a long fight sequence that really shows off both of their expertise. I would have loved to see something where they're like fighting and grappling and like at least a 30 second or minute fight sequence that where Priest can beat Farah at every single thing. She can lose every single time but show it off, like show that she's competent and that he's competent and that like, and like really build it up through that. Instead, this just feels, you know, it feels. I, I get where you're coming from, but, but to have it be so like compared to priest, Farrah is so incompetent that he doesn't even have to try. He dodges once, close lines and moves on. It's yeah. And he's even a little bit mournful. That's like, yo, oh, maybe next time. Uh, yo, he's got that sense of like, he would have liked to like that would have been interesting if you could have put up a fight but you're not at my level sorry it's to to me that's really showing priest as like no he he is 
an order of magnitude above Farah. It's not just that he's better. He is so much better that there isn't a fight because but, but to what that's point the level. purpose is my point. It, it, is what it, it means that when he's carrying in front of Bart, it's really emphasizing like in this situation, Priest didn't even go like, all right, let's have a fight. And then it's over. It's like he just walks up and he, you know, he barely even breaks stride. That's how unflinched, that's how competent he is in this situation. And then in front of but he's like, oh shit, no, I'm I'm not going to do this. Everybody, put your guns out. Like he's carrying because that's a situation that he can't deal with. He can't just straight right. into it, and his competence fails there. Uh, I just want to point out, you wanted a more extensive fight scene. Alan Tudyk, he was born in like '71, I think, so he would have been 46, 47 when this was made. So <laughs> a few years ago. So I'm not sure if that's, I'm not, I'm not putting him down for his age or anything, but I'm just saying, you know, would a 47 year old man really want to get into a really intense uh, fist fight with Farrah? <laughs> Depending on the, on the way that it was choreographed, that's not a problem. And, and I say that as a guy mid forties, you're with choreography. Mid forties is not a problem at that point. And maybe that's my frustration with uh, the sequence is that, Tudyk doesn't look like the build of a man who could do that. Yeah, that's that's fair. Like if Schwarzenegger did that, Schwarzenegger time, or like The Rock now, or like there are plenty of other beefier guys who it's like, oh yeah, 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 he clotheslined her and she is out. Whereas it's like, oh, that's Alan Tudyk. I mean, I I love that he's in this, but I do not believe that he just knocked her out with that clothesline. I just don't. I just, I, it, yeah, it, you know, the way that hit lands, I don't believe it. And, and maybe that's part of the other frustration with it is if they had, you know, a kick, if they had done something else where like, you know, he, you know, I would have loved, maybe he chokes her out, you know, they, something else where, you know, he still, ultimately she is unconscious and he has bested her and embarrassed her. But yeah. So, shall we move on just to the last couple of bits then? <laughs> yeah, uh, so, I may have to cut a lot of that ranting about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we get, um, going into the boys' bedroom, uh, where the, the, the exact where the mage was earlier, actually. And I think Todd is sort of desperately trying to figure out, where, oh, it must be the bed. How do we, how do we get through the bed? And he sort of bounces down on it, and then nothing happens, and he seems surprised. Um, and I think um, when... Um, Priest gets by Farah, uh, he starts calling out to Dirk, and Dirk's like, okay, Farah's dead. Sorry, Todd. Well, it's not that he says Farah's dead and you're dead too. Like he yeah. says, he says that Todd is also going. Well, if everything is going wrong for Dirk, and I can sort of understand that in, when you're in a sort of defeatist mindset. And they had to literally drag him out of the car as well. So he's thinking, I've already lost. And this is again this is the exact same room where the mage was going, I've already lost because Dirk has already found the boy. And so now we have the reverse thing happening in the same room, which I think is kind of funny in a way, but uh, except we like Dirk, so it's sad. I think they sort of both lie on it and go up and I think Todd remembers what Panto said about the bed folding outwards. He so he seems to remember that it's a Margaret bed or whatever. Yeah, he, he also remembers the water. He he realizes uh, he he puts he he puts one and one together. And realizes that like they're always wet when they come through. The water is all on that wall. The bed like the bed has to fold up for the portal to work. The other piece that I really want to make sure is painted in this scene is what Priest is saying. Priest is 
blaming Dirk for all of these deaths. He's 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 yeah. treating him like a child. He's saying like, you know, let us take you in. Nobody else has to die. Look at all of the people that died today because of you. Yeah, I I noticed that the, the because of you is uh, is very telling. It really emphasizes that Dirk's clearly been emotionally manipulated for a long time, and yeah. uh, potentially by priests, potentially by others, uh, in addition or instead of. Uh, but priest clearly knows that and is playing on that fear that Dirk himself was brought up unprompted, you know, with uh, with people dying with Arnold. Uh, so that's yeah, it it really gives a, that sense of we know why Dirk is freaking out with the deaths and and you're wanting wanting to solve the case and move on and nobody else nobody else has to die and uh, and priest knows exactly what buttons to push uh, they disappear just and then i think it's that final scene which we talked a little bit about there's the final scene at the borton's home where uh we we get uh, the mage and scott and bob just watching tv just hanging out and the mage is talking about how much he really enjoys hurting people and he's putting pins in Bob's face. They do a good job of getting lots of different colored pins, which I like. I've got pins like that, but I use them on my notice board, not on my face. But <laughs> And I also like how Scott, being the toad, has kind of given up trying to like get anyone's attention. Or try. He's just giving up, he's just watching TV. As the mage is going on about his 180 and how he's not interested in Windermore anymore. And he doesn't really want to rule anything anymore. He just wants to hurt people, and this world will help him do it. The line is, is like, is he's like, I, I always love doing like hurting people in person, um, and or something like that. And then he's like, that only leaves your sadistic wife to deal with, or something along. And then Susie comes in, right? Then what happens? It ends. Oh no, no, no. She she says like that. I've won. The child is dead. Dirk gently has like run away, or something. take me to send me to Wendell. Send me to Wendell. Send me to Wendell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to make sure that we that we covered. And the mage that. also looks uh, very concerned when he sees her coming in, <laughs> covered in glass on her face, and she looks. And the way she walks as well is amazing. She just seems like one leg's broken, and she's just gone straight back, which must have taken ages if she's limping all the way there again. She she seems to have a habit of breaking her leg. And <laughs> yeah, that's that true. Sense. That's certainly true. So the programs that they end up, uh, that the mage is watching on TV, they like he gets to, um, like, I think, a war one. Or is it World War II? There's like a plane going over. And it's sort of trying to illustrate, especially I think when the plane, when they use the plane, it's trying to illustrate the mage's point about why he's going to enjoy this world more. I realized I made a really big blunder in the first episode we did for this because i said that uh, the newton brothers did the score and while the newton brothers produced the score the score is actually the original score for season two is actually done by jeff russo who also did the score for the fargo tv show among other oh, things really? so oh, <laughs> i got that completely wrong like, i saw the newton brothers names pop up and i thought oh they must have done it and i ignored a bit where jeff russo's name pops up above them so that's <laughs> an inexplicable terrible error by me do we have any final thoughts about the episode as a whole as a yeah, the the directions that it went and what it did to the plot. Um, uh, I, like, I, I think I, I like it more than I did at the beginning of the episode of the recording because <laughs> Jesse and you have talked me into it a bit more. And oh, that's good. Well. Um, yeah. But um, I still don't think it's quite as good as um, the previous episode, which was Shapes and Colors. I think that one's a little bit more fun. With this one, there are a couple of little bits that still feel a little kind of clunky to me. I I liked it because it mixes things up a bit. One or two of the earlier episodes, uh, I'm pretty sure I described as 
each team continues forward on its own pace, but they're not interacting with each other. And this episode really feels like, all right, the, the different parts of the plot are starting to overlap and merge and complicate each other's plots. Uh, and it, it makes for complicated and potentially messy looking uh, storytelling. Uh, but oh, it makes it's messy. It interesting. A lot of people died in this yeah. episode. Well, hmm. I'm, but, but, most of them we but, didn't know. But well, <laughs> I'm I'm also just talking messy from a. Uh, it, it's not a linear plot. It's not a straightforward. And you're, what happened this episode? Oh, so much stuff. I don't even remember it all. Is kind of your reaction? It's it's not a. What happened this plot? Oh well, you know, Amanda and and Todd did their thing and they met with Dirk and your Bart did her thing and she met with Hobbs. It's like, it's not simple, clean things that you can describe for the most part. Yeah. I didn't even remember Officer Rizzio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, a, like I said, there's, it reminded me of an unmemorable lawyer from the first season who does in like two scenes and then disappears. Reminded me of that. There was a lawyer in the first season? Yeah, I was going to say, I don't remember Patrick, a lawyer. Patrick had a lawyer. John Dollar, yeah, that's yeah. his name. Right, yeah. I feel like uh, Officer Rizzio is definitely going to be a contender for the season two John Dollar Award for least memorable character. Definitely. <laughs> character I feel like I should remember, but I don't. Uh, I, I, as I said before, I like the Um, I think that for the last uh, six episodes, it's been a, a slow boil, a gradual build. And this is the first episode where I feel like you could, like, things really happened. Um. Pl- Plots collided. Uh, yeah. We finally understand all like all the characters. I think we also had a break from Black Ring because they also come back full force because we had the sort of the, hints of them all they're coming in the previous episode. Yes, I mean Blackwing happens briefly with Priest in the scene before Amanda, Amanda and Vogel go into Wendemore, and like that is a thing that's happening. But like from that sequence to this sequence, there is no real action in Blackwing like to, to speak of. And so like what I like about this episode is a, we feel like we've lost and the audience feels lost. They thought that they had the solution. They thought everything was going to get solved and wrapped. And then obviously it doesn't. And the rug and gets now, got pulled out quite literally. Yeah, the rug <laughs> seriously gets pulled out from under you. And so you're left with this sense of, well, what's going to happen now? Like uh, I, I really felt like, Oh man, it's it's like starting to get good is like what I felt after this episode. And obviously the last episode was like all super sugary saccharine love and that unlike great music picks and all of that stuff. And that's always super fun. But it, this episode I felt like had um, more impactful events happening. Okay, shit's going down. Shit's going <laughs> down. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, so that was uh, Girl Power. So next episode is season two, episode seven, which is This Is Not Miami. <laughs> And indeed, it isn't. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, looking forward to doing that one. If you want to contact us, come to our website at dirtrickneypodcast.wordpress.com, which has an email form where you can contact us. No one ever uses it, but you can <laughs> for the first in a while. <laughs> and uh, if I'm hopefully by this point, I would have put the episodes up there. And we're also on Twitter on social media. So, I'm on Twitter at Edward J. Hunter. And Nemo's on there too, which is at uh, sub underscore. Yep. <laughs> sub, sub underscore ETHR. Yeah. I remember it now because I'm editing that podcast where I got it right. And now uh, <laughs> just repeating. Uh, awesome. And other people are around too. I'll take care of mine. So I'm yeah. Erebus. I'm at Erebus Wolf, E R E B U S W O L F, Erebus Wolf. I'm that on Twitter, on YouTube, on Twitch. You can find me anywhere. 
I own the Douglas Adams subreddit r slash Douglas Adams, or as my friend calls it, because it doesn't have capitals. He calls it Glassadams. <laughs> drives me nuts. Um, and also, Jesse, uh, what's it called? The, you've got the game on Steam. That's- yes, Hush in Search of Dominic Ward. We just cast two voice oh, actors cool. this past week. I'll do VO recording with them next week. I'm ah, very cool. excited. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Or hear, you'll hear from us next time, rather. Okay, goodbye. Have fun, everyone. Bye. Enjoy your possible quarantine. Probably shouldn't say that one on the air. Okay, let's try that again. Have a good night, or whatever the hell you're doing. <laughs>